Have you ever thought about your rights and freedoms regarding your money and its impact by legislation from all levels of government? Welcome to the Information Edge with your host, Darren Yancey. Darren has over 40 years of experience in key sectors of the economy, and he's been knee-deep in politics for over a decade. He's going to get into detail on these sectors, the politics surrounding them, what they mean to you, and how you can protect yourself and be involved. Now, live from Texas, your host, Darren Yancey. All right, folks, welcome to the Information Edge podcast. I'm your host, Darren Yancey. Uh, it's it's a wonderful week in Texas and the rest of the nation. Uh, our winds are a little high today. If you want to fly a kite, you better have some dadgum heavy boots on. I, I got to tell you, we are hitting a, a really good stride right now in the podcast with the guests, with the, na- the, the audience growing through. We really appreciate all of the responses we get in email, social media uh, that come through Voice America. Your support is fantastic. It's what keeps me going. Uh, we have an opportunity today to bring a guest back on our show that we had on a few months back that actually predicted in advance of all the other soothsayers of what would happen in Virginia. And I, I'm, I'm pretty impressed by that because uh, I didn't see it coming. It, I was a naysayer, but now I'm, I'm, I'll eat my crow um, and be happy about it. We have with us today, Mr. John Zadrozny with the America First Policy Institute. That's right. America First. You're not hearing it much nowadays because we've got an America last person in occupying 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, but we're working to change that. It's just going to take a little time. John, how are you doing today? Hey, Darren, I'm great. Thanks for having me back on the show. I appreciate it. Well, I tell you what, um, you know, I don't want to be a comedian about this, but I have, there's times you have to laugh or all you do is cry, but the trough that is outlaw Joe Biden. And I did a show several uh, episodes back and I just laid out all of the crimes that he's committed. I refer to him as outlaw Joe. That's, that's his, that's his moniker for me now. Outlaw Joe is, he's just one of these, you know, it's aside from the gaffes. I don't know if you saw today where he was talking about, it's not just two votes, but who gets to count the votes. Have you seen that clip? Uh, Yeah. I'm pretty sure Joseph Stalin also said the same thing, but I digress. I got to tell you the words like that, don't go well over. I don't think they go well over in any state. I can tell you, they they really don't go over well in red states. And I'm hoping that was just another outlaw Joe Biden gaffe. But you never know. You never know. Let's talk about the border, which is right now. That's your you're the director for the Center for Homeland Security there at AFPI. We already had a lot of folks that came through 15,000 and then automatically they just kind of disappeared. We've got a whole caravan coming through. I have been very critical of my governor in in terms of his use of our resources to go through, but there are constitutional issues. Number one, Joe Biden has just thrown the constitution out the window, but my governor has a constitutional responsibility to defend the border. How do you feel governor Abbott has done thus far with what he's facing and the assets that he has? That's a good question, Darren. I mean, I would generally give governor Abbott some decent marks. I, I, your point's well taken regarding the limits between federal and state. Uh, and just as a reminder, like I grew up in the Northeast and on the mid-Atlantic Eastern seaboard. We've ne- if I had a governor like Governor Abbott, I'd be thrilled because it really we've never had anything close to that in a lot of the places I've lived. So it's all relative. Um, I think he has done some things. I know some people have been a little cynical because he's got an election on the horizon and he's got some tough primary challengers. I'll say this. I think he has tried his best. I also know that he has 
taken his oath to protect the citizens seriously. You've seen him do some things. The things I would encourage uh, you and others to think about is states have more power than they think on the immigration front. This is something Absolutely. I try and bring up. I, I think there's this, um, it's a combination of failure of education and intentional misinformation and some lazy Republicans over the years who've taken themselves out of the game saying, well, the feds have got this. Um, a lot of people don't realize that the states actually historically were in charge of border control until the creation of the Border Patrol in the 1920s. And it's debatable whether or not the Border Patrol is a, is a preempting law enforcement force in that space. That's a real, that's a debate we should have. That is, a good, that is a good debate because it would answer a lot of questions. Right. But regardless of that, how that debate comes out, every governor in this union has an obligation to the people of his or her state to protect their safety, protect their security, protect their resources. So from what I've seen from Governor Abbott, he's done a decent job, but he's got some barriers. I, I know anecdotally that there are people who'd like to do more in his universe, but they do feel constrained. Um, we'll see what happens going forward. I can only hope that, uh, I mean, the problem is there's no relief coming, right, from the feds. I think our, our people tend to think, even the small government conservatives, Darren, they're always looking to Washington, which is our first mistake, but there are a lot of solutions at the state level. Well, why don't you enumerate some of those for the other? I mean, I've went over them before, but it's, it's always good to keep refreshing people. Here's what we can do on a state level to yeah. do more to help preserve and protect our country. Yeah. So there's no one thing. So let's stick to border security specifically, Darren. Um, you've seen, for example, Governor Abbott has asserted resources to um, construct barriers. That's a very positive thing to do. Um, yeah, obviously, the, a state can't build a barrier smack dab in the middle of the Rio Grande. There are some national issues there, but they can do things on the state side. Um, I, I think they could even go so far as to dredge the, the state side of the Rio Grande, deepen some of the water. I know from being in Del Rio and a couple other spots along the border, calling the, the Rio Grande a river is, is charitable. Um, there are some um, uh, works projects that could be initiated to make the Rio Grande great again, so to speak. We could actually make it a meaningful waterway that prevents easy crossings. Um, I think the states could do that on their side of the river uh, without federal approval. Um, in addition to those barriers, uh, the main thing the states can do, and this doesn't just apply to border states, Darren, this applies across the United States, states can start shutting down the pull factors that are drawing illegal aliens here to this country. So that's everything from driver's licenses, including commercial driver's licenses, business licenses, um, the ability to do Anything meaningful on a daily basis requires state approval. And you and I have to show dental records to get anything we want. Uh, and yet illegal aliens can get the, their ability to earn, earn, uh, earn a living and support their families and get all sorts of other goodies. All of that should be made much harder by the states. And what you'll see is you'll see people not stay because there are a lot of the assumptions about the people who come here and try and sneak in. Um, now they didn't have to sneak in under Joe Biden. But in the past, when they snuck in, they knew if they got past the border, they were home free. But when states start shutting off the goodies and the privileges, uh, some of them will turn around. Well, one of the things that they're one of Governor Abbott's challenges uh, or challengers has listed a couple of things. Right now, we've got we've actually had cartels shooting across our border, the United States border. Um, obviously, there's not a federal response. The state has, can do a response. But there's been suggestions to designate some of these groups as uh, narco terrorists so that they can uh, take different action against them, seize bank accounts, um, things that start going after them. And we, we've got some problems in Texas where we've got people that have come over and 
in other countries and there are buying land tracks here close to the border that is facilitating these things out. And I know legislatively, we're trying to see some of it changing. What would you recommend? You know, in, in, in our particular case, we are a border state. We've got four border states, us, New Mexico, uh, Arizona, down the line, and to California. But realistically, what flows through those flows through other states. For example, we know people are going to Florida. Um, what, what Are we to a point where we need to take, and I, I, I'm going to be careful in the choice of my words, um, aggressive response from a possible military standpoint or National Guard or Texas Guard standpoint in stopping these people to the point of lethal force if necessary? Uh, I would, the way I would answer that, Darren, is that these groups are a national security and a public safety threat. And I think, for example, there's no reason, I'm not encouraging anyone to do anything, but I'm not saying, I'm just saying that I don't think if someone from a cartel on the Mexican side of the Rio Grande shoots at Texas law enforcement that they shouldn't be authorized to shoot back. I mean, the reality is they're relying on that intimidation factor and on um, Texas law enforcement and other states' law enforcement to not respond. I mean, let's face it, the cartel, the, the, the cartels right now are the only industry profiting under Joe Biden. I mean, they are making money hand over fist. And so the surest way to ensure that they'd be unhappy is to cut off their supply of income, which would be to shut down illegal immigration. Um, there are things that other things that states could do. I mean, I was thinking about this a second ago when you were talking about the shooting. Um, you know, you don't necessarily want to go in a direction where you prevent private citizens from owning waterfront property abutting an international border. But maybe the solution is to no longer have that under private control. You know, you've got these wide open ranch lands where there's no law enforcement. It's private property. Um, and you don't want to take anyone's property without reimbursement. But at the same time, is it wise in the modern era to have a non-state property on a state border facing basically what's a second world country, which is Mexico? I mean, this is the other side of the conversation, Darren, that nobody wants to talk about. We keep pretending Mexico is a first world ally. No, they're it's, not. It's not anymore. In fact, they're not quite a third world country. I'd like to call them what some people I've talked to refer to as a second world country. You know, they have indicia of modernity. Uh, they've got cell phones and, you know, you, Mexico City is kind of nice, but um, one third of the country is run by uh, international drug cartels. Um, it's kind of like Colombia in the 1980s. No one pretended Colombia was a first world country then. And it's kind of the same thing now. And I'm sure that there'd be some people who'd be offended to hear that, but that's the reality. It is so the reality you, of it. Yeah. So how do you well, deal with that? I think at some point there's got to be some law enforcement pushback at the state level. Well, I can tell you this, and, and I talk with a lot of um, we talk with a lot of citizens down in the in the ranching area, and there's a lot of these people coming across the border. Some of them are going through; they're just getting out, and getting into the business. There are some that are stopping and killing cattle. There are some that are actually going to the ranchers' houses and trying to break in houses. Um, I'm not going to say who, and I'm not going to say where, but I know of ranchers that are. I mean, everybody tries to be understanding to a point, but I can tell you this, I've got multiple stories where there are multiple ranchers who have engaged in lethal action with these people and, and they're buried on their land. You know, they've shot them. They put them, they're now six feet under three feet, whatever it is, because that's what they're having to do because there's no one there to protect. And, and when people reach that and uh, something's happening in Texas, we talked about it a little bit last time you were on because you said, and realistically, the Democrats have effectively bred themselves into a minority position long term. The south portion of Texas in the next five years is going red. It's already started. 
And a lot of those are second generation people came through. They don't like what's going on. They're very conservative folks. You've already seen some some mayors coming through. We're already seeing some uh, state house seats flipping. We've already seen a U.S. house seat flip. And I think part of that is because of a lack of response on a federal level. Really, that goes back to Reagan. I mean, we've not really had a good secure border since Reagan. President Trump did a good job while he was in, but he's been a blip in the past 30 years. So you look how open that border has been. And so I know it's something that people are frustrated at. And right now, I guess my, the other question I'd have on this, and I, I want to move to another topic real quick. When we're talking to federal elected officials and those that want to become federal elected officials, What's the question that you would like to see asked of all candidates seeking election or re-election on how to protect our border? Uh, what, what I would say, Darren, is I think if we live in an era where the problems are so obvious and the answers are binary, right? So I would take the approach of if anyone's running, you know, even at a local race, as we've learned, local races have impact on these national issues. But let's just say, like you said, a member of the House, someone's running for as a Republican to be in the House next year. Uh, ask them, uh, do you want to end illegal immigration? Yes or no? Are you in favor of building, completing construction of the wall started by Donald Trump? Yes or no? Are you in favor of shutting off welfare benefits and tax benefits for illegal aliens? Yes or no? Um, these are very clear questions. And anyone who can't answer that question with a yes or a no probably should be thanked for their time and sent somewhere else. You need to be able to get clear answers. And we're, we're lucky because in the past, People trying to be Republicans were able to blather their way into election with some like, you know, they just babble and they say things and they use big words and people walk away. We now have a yes or no moment. Are you in favor yeah. of doing the things that matter or are you not? And if you're not, please go away. I, I would agree with that 100 percent. There's a point of clarity. Folks are there for lack of a better word. We're tired of the horse minutia and we want to get past it and make the country better. And, and this is not to say that we're. This isn't a racist issue. This isn't against legal immigration. This is having a control border where you've got sovereignty of your nation because without it, we've got problems. Um, let's talk about COVID vaccine mandates. Joe Biden got his proverbial fanny handed to him by the fifth and sixth district courts. Yeah, so that's true. Uh, there have been several court injunctions against the administration's push to mandate vaccines. And I'm, I use vaccine in quotes. Um, yes. for an awful, an awful lot of uh, federal employees. Um, so we're talking full-time federal employees, uh, federal contractors. And also there was that attempt that they were trying to use the uh, um, Office of uh, Safety and Health uh, to uh, push the, um, the vaccine mandate under the private sector. Basically, all of those have been shut down. I may be wrong about this, Darren. I think the only one that hasn't been stopped is um, implementation of the vaccine mandate in the military. You might have seen that story the other day where they released 24 right. um, members of the Air Force for, yeah. I'm not sure the exact circumstances, but I believe for refusing to request the vaccine. And they may have had their religious exemption denied. Um, wh why the federal government's allowed to judge a religious exemption request is beyond me. I thought that was what the First Amendment was about. But um, it's, it's, yeah, you could say, like you said, he did get his rear handed to him. But don't forget, Darren, this is a lawless administration. I have no doubt in my mind that they are still churning toward the end goal past the injunctions of forcing these mandates. Gosh only knows what they're doing behind the scenes. In fact, if you recall, they were very open about promoting 
violations of court orders. I remember there were, yes. Jen Psaki was at that podium in the White House saying, she was. hey, yeah, don't worry about the courts. We insist that you move forward with these mandates. Yeah, it's a co-equal branch of government. Right. Yeah. No, don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. Yeah, that's that's why I call him outlaw Joe. He, I, I, I honestly, I don't know how there is no oversight in Congress right now. Um, and I, I've heard there's three different articles of of impeachment filed against Joe Biden. And I talked with some Republicans who have said, "Well, you know, this person's too radical." Blah blah blah. And I'm like, you know, okay, so what? Get together, make a single article. And get 90, 95% of the Republicans together. Don't you think right now that there'd be some Democrat defectors that would like to get reelected in some of the moderate areas, considered moderate at one time, and I use that in air courts for a reason, that might get behind actually doing an article of impeachment to get his fanny out? I mean, I think those who are vulnerable in the fall would probably strongly think about it, Darren. Yes. So the question is, why don't we have the Republicans in the House getting behind either one, all of them, or a revised article of impeachment against Joe Biden. There's clear evidence, unrefutable, undebatable evidence that the man has broken the law. Why is anybody doing it? I'm what I would say. I know this is your opinion. I know that's that's your opinion. Yeah, I do have to emphasize this is my opinion. I I think uh, that there are probably more members of the Republican Party in Congress who are okay with what he's doing and don't want to cause a stir. Um, you know, I, I think we've seen this too much, too many times in the Republican Party where they're they just sort of stand with their hands in their pockets and don't really do anything when a Democrat is destroying things at breakneck speed. You know, if, if we had a, a Republican version of the Democrat Party, we would be demanding answers to everything at the top of our lungs and promising impeachment when we get control of the two chambers in the fall. Um, you know, I, I, I do worry, too, like also there are just some people who they were happy to see president in the Republican Party in Congress. They were happy to see President Trump go because he actually kept his promises and they're happy with a Democrat who destroys things because it's closer to what they prefer anyway, because it's easier to wave your fist in the air and say, gosh, this guy sucks. We need to get reelected. But to actually solve problems, that's a bridge too far for some of these guys. Yeah. And we we won't name names here. (laughs) I won't put you on that much of a spot. But yes, there's way too many of them. and, And it's a problem that we have through. So right now with COVID. Now, I, there was an article that came out earlier today that you still have large companies that are mandating COVID-19 vaccines. And yes, the term vaccine is loose because CDC has, we have pictures of what used to be the definition of a vaccine, which was actually to make you immune to something. And now that's no longer the definition of a vaccine. That's changed. You've had Kroger that's come out that is saying, hey, we're taking away some of your benefits. We're going to charge you more. Um, and then you've had Google come out and said, well, we're going to fire you if you're not vaccinated. Did they did they miss what the, the fifth and sister district said? Or are they just going to go, ah, we'll, we'll worry about it later when we get sued? Well, the, the, in some ways, Darren, unfortunately, the private sector can do what they want. In other words, they're not required necessarily to wait for the OSHA rule to make to put these things in place. I mean, they are a private company, but here's the, the flip side of that is I almost think that um, the administration pushed the mandate saying they were going to do it and was a sort of a virtue signal to the Fortune 500 woke companies that they need to get started on this and not wait for them to get the rule out. So that's one thing. Like, in other words, they don't really need to wait for the feds to do it. If I, was own, if I owned a giant company that employed lots of people, I would wait. 
because why would I want to lose my employees and destroy productivity and turn my my HR people into a Gestapo? But another thing that really troubles me about this, Darren, is really when you when you take a step back and look at this, if you took out the word unvaccinated and put in black or Hispanic or any other group, how is this not like a pretty significant civil rights violation? This is a new era for us. You still have the 14th Amendment, whether it's a government business or whether it's a private business. Last time I checked, you didn't lose that right in the Constitution when, when whichever sector you went with. The other thing that bothers me, and it, it, I, it, every time I try to bring it, it just goes away. There's a little law out there called HIPAA. And it's like it doesn't even exist right now. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, it's funny how, like, um, the left has run screaming from the whole my body, my choice dialogue oh but yeah but yeah. but when you when you start talking about medical privacy that's also it just draws crickets as well but with somebody reminded me the other day that hipaa hipaa is almost as much about um it's almost more about if i call your doctor and say hey i need darren's uh, medical information the doctor's not allowed to tell me and that's what hipaa is um largely about however it's also ridiculous to me that you can somehow subvert the intent of hipaa by going right to the patient and basically strong arming them to release their information. It's really no different than going right to the doctor. It, it, it's, it's not. And I think there's some precedent out there. That's what I'm saying. All these employers, I think they're really taking a big chance because if you didn't ask for my vaccination record going in, if my contract, if I have a contract with you, if it doesn't require it where you, we have to have mutual consent uh, and, and in addition to 14th amendment violations, I think they're opening themselves up for a massive, massive lawsuit. I think when the dust clears on this, I think there's going to be some huge uh, civil lawsuits. And I think these companies, I can tell you this, their employment practices insurance isn't going to cover it. (laughs) And they're going to be out there on the hook. I, I just think it's something that's hurting. Now, you think the continuation of this process still makes the country more vulnerable from a security standpoint. Expand on that. Oh, it absolutely does, Darren. I mean, what we've seen just in the initial last few months when they've pushed these mandates, you've seen um, numbers of uh, basically military, uh, members of the branches of the armed forces, uh, law enforcement across the country and state uh, police forces, um, also in federal law enforcement agencies. But for these injunctions, a lot of these people would be getting pushed out of their jobs right now. Many have already left in states and localities where um, there is no injunction, and they have some dictatorial leadership in these posts. And that endangers you and me on a daily basis. Every person who who leaves um, working for the Department of Homeland Security because they haven't gotten a vaccine, if they work for the Border Patrol, that's one less person on the border. If they work for the state police, that's one less person who's patrolling the highways of your state. And all of this adds up. Like, for example, you could say, well, there's an injunction at the federal level. It doesn't really matter. The feds are going to be picking up the slack for these diluted, weakened state police forces and so on. So you get this collective drain. Um, sometimes I, I honestly think the left wants it that way. I, I mean, I, well, look I, at it for, I don't think there's any question. Yeah. Like, for example, in Virginia, I know in my county, I live in Prince William County, Virginia. Uh, I know a bunch of teachers right now who are being basically squeezed on the testing and the vaccination front. And I think deep down, and I'm sure that's happening in every county in Virginia, and hopefully the incoming administration will address that. Um, but they are basically um, hope. I think they're my conspiracy theory is they're trying to bootstrap a teacher shortage so they can go back to virtual. and The teachers unions can be happy again. 
And um, there are probably different variations in different industries, but it's a huge problem. You can't help but notice too, Darren, just one last thing on this point. I've noticed that like the it's all the large Fortune 500 woke companies that are very excited about demolishing their productivity. Um, but you'll notice that the smaller companies and medium-sized companies have been very quiet. And I, I could have sworn I saw a poll today where a lot of these smaller to medium-sized businesses have said, yeah, we're inclined to not do this. They don't want this. They understand. And what company in its right mind would want to spend its entire day policing the medical history of its employees? Don't you want them to be productive, produce goods, serve people, make money? It's, it's really quite remarkable. It's amazing how we did all of this last year without a vaccine, you know, and we didn't have these issues. You know, it's funny. You talk about teachers and, and this is something that I, I'm starting, I'm, I'm going to be spending a lot more this next year, but every, virtually every state, I don't know if there's a state out there that doesn't, if there is, correct me, but every state to my knowledge charges property taxes and those property taxes are predominantly for local, mainly for their school districts in their counties. You know, if these teachers want to go to this virtual environment, then it's time to take a wrecking ball to the entire structure of property taxes, which I actually, I want to see anyway, because, you know, right now we've got a problem in Texas where I think we're either the fifth or sixth highest property tax rate in the nation. And we're paying for, we've got our priorities we've got to go through. But if I'm someone, uh, if I'm in California where I'm paying a lot or any other states above us, and I've got to go to a virtual environment constantly, I'm going to question, why am I sending you this great big check? You know, if you're no. not going to that big building that I paid for, we need to completely restructure that. And nobody is, nobody wants to broach that subject because I think there's dramatic fear on the local level, if you the reason all these things stayed open and they did what they wanted is they had the property tax money coming in. Take yeah. it away, and you got a whole different you got a whole different animal. You, I, I couldn't agree with you more, Darren. I think this is one of those things we need to address nationwide because the school districts are perfectly okay if you pull your child out and school them at home or put them in a private school. Uh, because they get, still get to keep your property taxes. Um, like there should be some sort of either, like you said, either just eliminate state property taxes outright, let people handle their own money and, and deal with uh, deal with whatever you need to do across the state with the normal tax collection, or give people, parents, grandparents, portable uh, property tax portability so they could put it to their kids' education. But the school systems, they don't care about your kids. They care about the money that you pay from your property money. taxes. So you money speaks. It has a huge impact. In fact, I don't know if you saw this the other day, Darren, that when, remember when the National School Board Association kabukied that letter with Merrick Garland to uh, yeah. label parents domestic terrorists? Well, it turns out the NSBA is in deep financial trouble because all of the state school board associations and local school board associations said, this is abusive. We don't agree. We're out. They took their dues. And now NSBA is in deep trouble. Turns out when you abuse people's money, or their rights, and they take their money with them, you don't have a leg to stand on. So parents need to start taking that money back from these school districts. They'll listen. Isn't it funny when you follow the money, how things just, I think, I think this whole pandemic, aside from getting President Trump out, and yes, I'm going to, I'll admit to that conspiracy theory. 
I think this is all about money and control, and we've just got to take some things away on it. All right, folks, we're going to take our one break for this show because we've got our special guest on here, John Zadrozny with America First Policy Institute. We're going to pay a few bills, hit the water cooler, and we'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in to The Patricia Raskin Show on voiceamerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. This is the program that helps you turn obstacles into opportunities, challenges into solutions, and find answers to tough questions with the award-winning powerhouse voice of radio, Patricia Raskin. So tune in and call in to The Patricia Raskin Show, Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. You are listening to The Information Edge with Darren Yancey. To reach the program today, call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to darren at darrenyancey.com. Now, back to The Information Edge. All right, folks, welcome back to The Information Edge. I'm Darren Yancey. Today, our special guest is John Zadrozny with the America First Policy Institute, and we're covering a lot of topics John, before we get off this last topic we talked about on property taxes, I know you you guys take more of a federal view, but I think it should be some a charge within your organization to look at what I call economic slavery of property taxes and realistically uh, a form of indentured servitude and control. Uh, I think it's something that your your organization might want to look into in developing a policy to come out. If if, if you've got one and I'm just missing it, say Darren, we got one. But if you don't. I think it'd be great to have AFPI have that and something to push out because I can tell you this, if you go back and you look at this year and you look at last year in COVID and you look at all the little fiefdoms of mayors and those fiefdoms popped up, the one way they were able to maintain that or that control and, and the grip was property tax revenue. And if that's not there, it's a whole different animal. They got to rely off sales tax. No, Darren, you're absolutely correct. I, I thank you for the, the lead in for uh, America first policy Institute. I would, say, I don't know about this particular issue, but we do have a Center for Education Opportunity. Um, we are, however, as an organization, interested in what goes on federally, but also at the state level. And I think that's important. I mean, we do understand, recognize, and we're working toward working with more governors, attorneys general, and state legislators, because the, the answers lie locally and at the state level as well. 
And um, we are going to try and do this increasingly in the next year. You know, we've got a lot of state legislatures coming up for their spring sessions. Um, in the States, it turns out legislators have real jobs most of the year. They only work for two or three months, so they have to work really hard in a short period of time. So we're hoping to work with them and be in some of these state capitals and help them out where, they, where we can. Um, but you're absolutely right, basically, that this is something worth looking at. And taking that money away from these local tyrants is the most important thing you could do because they can act all big and bad. They can shut down school board meetings. They can ignore you. Um, but if they can't keep the lights on, they're not going to be able to keep their jobs. And uh, that's something that everyone should look at. Like you said before, follow the money. It's always true, whether it's in business or government. Well, I can tell you right now in Texas, uh, there was a bill that was entered in the regular session. It kind of <clears> got kicked aside. Grassroots tried to bring up the first special session. It didn't go through. I can tell you right now, the Republican Party of Texas is going to be adding it as a platform to the state plank, and they're going to send it up national. And I can tell you, I would look, may take two, maybe three sessions, but you're going to see property taxes going away in Texas, or you're going to see a massive bloody revolt because you've got people losing their homes over it. And it empowers the very situation that we described. So it's it's absolutely got to it's it's got to stop. Let's talk about something that's happening. Um, it's I never really thought I would see the day come up that a legitimate discussion about the potential overturn of Roe v. Wade would occur. But right now it's at our doorstep, and and I, I'm I'm still a little leery of this Supreme Court. There's things that they do. I go okay, and then there's things like they did yesterday when they wouldn't hear the emergency order for what's happening in New York. And I go, okay, I'm still not sure where they're at, but I like what I'm hearing on Roe v. Wade. What's, uh, what's, what's your thoughts and opinions on what's happening there? Darren, I'm kind of where you are. I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. Uh, I, my, um, I, I've been talking with a lot of people who are super optimistic. However, I've learned to be disappointed by the Supreme Court. Um, my fear, however, is that for while it would be great if they did, in fact, first, um, the, probably one of the worst Supreme Court decisions ever issued, which is Roe v. Wade, which was completely untethered to the Constitution. It was just made up by seven justices. Um, you couldn't have if you've ever sat down and read the decision, it was pretty clear that those seven justices back in 1973 had an end result they wanted to get to. And they were going to slap anything in that decision to get there. Yeah. Um, I can't think of anything more grotesque and inhumane than the infanticide we've been endorsing for 50 years. Um, that said, I worry the Supreme Court, if it even does anything, is going to make an incremental decision here. Um, like I could see a scenario where they, for example, say it's okay to restrict abortion at the 15 week mark, after the 15 week mark or after the 20 week mark or so on. Um, but if Roe v. Wade were to be struck down, this is the left's worst nightmare because really some um, closet lefties on the right, uh, because what they would actually have to do is then legislate. I mean, one of the greatest gifts to the debate, the public debate about abortion was Roe v. Wade, because it allowed all of our legislators who pretend to be leaders when they want to, to say, well, gosh, it's the law of the land. There's nothing we can do. And if Roe v. Wade, Roe v. Wade were to be reversed, um, or struck down, basically, that they would have to you know, do their jobs and express their views on abortion. And that would be difficult for some of them to explain. One other thing, too, I just want to point out, I don't know if everyone really fully appreciates this, and I hate to be a skeptical Washington person, but there are a lot of these organizations that raise a ton of money off of Roe v. Wade's existence. And some of them purport to be pro-life, but I promise you right now, they would prefer Roe v. Wade remain in place because it'll negatively impact their fundraising. Um, 
So it'd be nice for some of these organizations to say, we expect this to go away and be vocal about justices on the Supreme Court. I mean, we, in theory, we have six Republican appointed justices who told uh, senators they were pro-life during their confirmation hearings. Uh, We know Roberts is full of it, but at least we've got five who we think at least, you know, the last two, in fact, were appointed by President Trump. And we were all told they were pro-life justices. They opposed Roe v. Wade, um, you know, they're Catholic. Look, I'm Catholic. I don't care what religion they are. I just want them to actually uphold I mean, the Constitution and defend things and to protect life. Yeah, it's 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 show me in the Constitution where it gives someone the right to murder babies. And I, that's yeah, something I throw in. I've, I've had when we got in a discussion, I said, show me where you show me in the Constitution where those God fearing men in the 1700s said, go ahead and butcher babies. The, it would have been the last thing for, on their mind. And. There was an article that came out in the New York Times today, as a matter of fact, of here's who gets abortions. Single mother. So they've already had a child, 20 to 29. Um, They're working, usually some secondary education, but limited, not a full college degree on the lower end of earnings. Blue states. That was the big denomination, blue states. Now, I'm not going to be hypocritical and say that there's not abortions going on in my state. I know for a fact there are. But I thought it interesting that the Times came out and in their their column, they specifically highlighted blue states were the, the norms. So my thoughts are if if they if I if I'm sitting here and I'm looking at kicking back Roe v. Wade, the reason I would look at it, and here's how that would what you get at in helping those nonprofit groups is kick it back to the states. Let the states handle it. We sh- the, the federal government shouldn't be involved in that in the first place. And then all those nonprofit groups can still raise their money working on the states to get their legislation either not going forward or as is in each one of those. I call that a win-win in my book. And I just found it because I think right now, and you tell me if, if you agree or disagree, I think we're already seeing, starting to see, because of COVID, we're seeing a, a political and social realignment of the states. We've got a massive exodus of folks out of their, their blue states, and they don't have stand a chance of going red, and they're going to red states. I don't see blue, I don't see people, blue folks in red states exiting yet. That may happen. But I think it's we're already in a I don't want to use the word secessional, but we're definitely in a political realignment of the states. And I think if Roe v. Wade would be kicked back, that would further enhance that realignment of the political environments of the states. Your thoughts? No, I, I, I think you're right, Darren. And I, I think you're right about that. I think you're also right about what you said before, which is that there's not really a problem if if Roe v. Wade were struck down, because then the, there's. There's, there are more battles. There are more places to fight. I mean, I think that there's, you know, the way I would say it is not only do legislators, some red, some blue, not want to talk about this because they don't want to have to go to people and say, I favor abortion. I want to keep it because they've had the luxury of like hiding behind the Supreme Court for 50 yes, years. Um, but they'd actually have to, they'd actually have to fight at their state level. And then there'd be a lot of battles, a lot of money coming in. And so, but you, one thing that I, to your point, when the March of Dimes was created, I, I'm pretty sure the March of Dimes was established to end polio. And so it turns yes, it out they were, they were really successful. 
But the people who ran March of Dimes didn't say, gosh, how can we keep polio around so we have something to do? They conquered polio and they pivoted to infant mortality. There's always another fight. I, I would right. encourage anyone who thinks there's, there's maintaining the status quo is, is, is the best way to solve this problem to think again and fight a little harder. And one last thing, abortion is a moneymaker in these blue states. And it's at the expense of the groups you mentioned, including a lot of minority men and women. Um, but that's okay. It makes a lot of money for Planned Parenthood and other similar corrupt organizations. So you have to ask yourself if people really think abortion is a humanitarian function or just a moneymaker. And I think the answer is obvious. You know, I've never understood. And, and, and if you go and you look at where these clinics are, how else do you put this? They're targeting minorities. There's no question they're targeting minorities. Yep. Why does it? And, and let's just put it out there. The black community is where they put most of these. Yeah. Uh, why, why hasn't the black community just gotten enraged over this? You know, I, I don't know the answer to that, but I would say I think it probably has if we just don't hear about it as much. Um, what, what the left never really wants to talk about is the fact that the patron saint of abortion, Margaret Sanger, was a eugenicist. She was adamantly opposed to minorities. She was adamantly opposed to what, I mean, I don't even know how to des describe it. She just viewed minorities as inferior and she was very vocal on this. I'm surprised even in this last year, she, uh, in some places she's still promoted as someone to look up to. She was basically in favor of genocide and I don't know why that was appropriate, but I don't necessarily think those community, I hear what you're saying. Um, I'm hoping it's like everything else we see where, whereas you and I know that certain realities are happening I would never hold my breath and wait for the media to actually cover them. Uh, the, the left, we've discussed this before, they're in deep trouble demographically. It's only worsening with the African-American and Hispanic communities in this country. Um, I saw a poll the other day which blew my mind, which is that the, the Republican, I'm sorry, the Hispanic vote in the United States, they've done some polling, is split, at least based on hypothetical presidential races in 2024 between Republicans and Democrats. Holy smokes, Darren. Like, that's I, I'm, not supposed I'm to happen. You. I'm telling you, because everybody's well, Texas is going to go purple. Texas, no, it's not. If anything, Texas is going to get redder than my shirt <laughs> because you. I'm, I'm. I'm. I've talked with. I talk with a lot of folks down south. Got, with, there's a lot of trucking issues down there. There's there's agricultural, and I'm telling you, I talk with a lot of the Hispanic families. They they share. You know, they they share common conservative things. They may have come here under a different guise, or their dad did, or grandpa, whatever they got here, and I and we can't go back and correct that. I'd like to be to get a, a, a point where everybody says we need to stop. But I'm telling you, the values are there and they're sick of seeing what's happening on the border. They're seeing what's happening with the country and, and they're they're looking at the lies. I, I think the Hispanic community will be what is a big fear of the liberal left. I think they're going to be a big pillar. And I think it won't be 10 years. I think it'll be in the next four to six years. The question is, is what is it going to take for the black community to come over? And, and, and I, this just staggers me. They had more support and more funding and more recognition of issues under President Trump than I think any president in history. You tell me if I'm wrong there. No, I, I think Why you're correct. Why didn't they there. come out in droves for President Trump? I, I'm, I, I've never I, understood this. It's a great question, but I, I think the answer is that the, it's – it's happening in a slower, in slow motion, and it's happening much slower maybe than we prefer. But I think the reality is what you saw in 2020 was the slow disintegration of the left stranglehold on minority voting blocks because they just don't do anything for anyone anymore. Um, you know, and also you've got communities 
regardless of race, ethnicity, et cetera, you know, you've second, third, fourth generation Americans, um, they're, you know, they're part of America. They're making money now. They have income. They have property. They're interested in having their kids be educated. They can't stand seeing communities get shredded. And the left comes back with the same old um, menu of America sucks and uh, you need to keep voting for us so we can make it better, even though they're in charge in a lot of these places. So I think the veneer is falling, maybe slower than some of us would like, but it's happening. And, you know, honestly, yes, I think it will happen. I think at some point we're going to see a much greater um, even handedness in terms of the black vote looking at Republicans versus Democrats. But what I do find really interesting also is that in some places it's just cataclysmic for the Democrats, even if it's 20 percent. Because they've banked for so long in some states and some cities, you know, they have to win like 95% of the vote. And they've been able to rely on that for decades. And now they're not winning 95%. Maybe they're winning 85 or 90%, but that's still not good. And you wait till it starts to slip. I think we're starting to see that though, Darren. I'll tell you what, I, I really hope the black community awakens to this. Because I think when the, when the day when the black community realizes of just how bad they've been abused, and we can't even list the abuses, by the liberals in the Democratic Party. Um, and they come over and embrace conservatism that's running through their blood. I think that's the day that liberalism is dead in this country. And, and I do think it'll happen. I just hope it happens in my lifetime. Um, one of the things that you, that you mentioned in the topics we talk about is getting rid of tyranny, making the federal government smaller. That's a big task because that's a Leviathan that just grows. How do we do it? Uh, so there's no one step, Darren, but I think it's, we've reached the point where uh, we have to have a really serious, out loud, non-whispery national conversation about shrinking the federal government. Um, historically, you know, as a fiscal conservative um, for the last 20 plus years, I've watched people have this debate uh, and they've all, it's always been a fiscal argument. It's been we're spending too much money. The federal government's too expensive. Um, we need to shrink it so we spend less money. So while that's all still true, it's pretty clear that that argument has fallen on deaf ears, especially when you have a Republican Party that spends like drunken sailors along with the Democrats, and it just doesn't resonate. In fact, one thing that I really think is interesting, we're spending a ridiculous sum of money that we don't have now, trillions upon trillions of dollars, and these numbers don't even register in polling. Like, Billion, trillion. It's so different than what money you deal with in real your real life that yeah. it's hard to fathom. But I think what people can appreciate, what they can see and understand now, is a federal government that is abusive. That it's it's every at every corner there's abuse. Like whether it's the family whose house is broken into in the middle of the night because someone in their family was at the rally with the president on January sixth. Or it's the FBI declaring that parents who care about their kids' educations and don't want school boards pushing pornography are domestic terrorists. We're finally seeing the manifestation of, of a government that's just too large for our own good. And well, the, and that brings up a point. And, and, and I'm going to ask you a very uncomfortable question. I'm, just let, I'm, just, I'm, I'm giving you a fair warning. Mm -hmm. There is a growing sentiment, and I will tell you I'm part of it, that every I agree with everything that you've said right here. Okay. I think we, and I think this realistically started back in with Bush 41 and just kept coming and coming. And in some administrations, it was softer and some other administrations, it was harder. Obviously the Obama administration was very hard. And then we got the respite with president Trump. Now we're 180 degrees opposite with the outlaw. 
a lot of people want to take a wrecking ball to this. And I mean a wrecking ball. We have the Bill of Rights. We have our Declaration of Independence. There's the discussion of the Tree of Liberty. In your opinion, are we reaching that time? Or can we save it in other nonviolent methods? I, I think we can solve this nonviolently and pretty easily. And when I say easily, I mean if you have people who are willing to say these things out loud, win elections, vote accordingly, we can do this. Um, it, I, there's no one step there, but I think like a basic blueprint for solving these problems is one is we just flat out, we need to spend less money. We need to stop feeding the Leviathan. You can't keep giving money. We wonder why people are unhappy with government. It's because when government has more money, it's less responsive and more abusive. It's not a, unlike the conversation we were having a few minutes ago about the school boards. You know, they still get your property taxes. They have no respect for you because you're still paying them. So stop paying them. Same with the federal government. We've got monstrous federal agencies. I saw an article the other day saying somebody in Congress recently asked uh, the Congressional Review Service, um, um, a research service, how many federal agencies there are. And they couldn't even fully answer the question because they didn't know exactly how the federal government defined agencies, but the number broke 400. And they were probably right? being honest in the answer. Right. And that's, that's terrifying. So fewer federal agencies. Fewer, fewer people working for those agencies. You know, you wonder why government is abusive. It's because you can't ever identify anyone who's responsible for the problem. You get these political officials who go up in front of microphones and say, um, I didn't do that, but I can go back and find out who did it. Well, you're never going to know because you've got thousands of people writing rules that impact your life and none of them are accountable. Let's start firing some DC-based federal workers. Let's start putting the people who are like accountable for work that affects people in the states in those states. Um, let's just reduce budgets for these agencies. Let's make sure that, um, you know, th this is basically something that's a long-term project. I'm not going to kid you, but I do think if DC is a little less populated and a little less soaking up the money of everyone else across the country, states have an ability to flourish and the federal government just can't be as abusive as it is. Is it time to go back and amend the 16th amendment and go back to a consumption tax? Uh, I, I'm not this. I'm not sure. Uh, I'd love to see. That's, the that's a big. That's, I, I, you, that's every, I ask people that and everybody squirms. <laughs> yeah. I mean, part of me would love it uh, because basically that would force the federal government to be much smaller. Um, although with the current crop of people we've had in charge of Congress for the last 30 years, they probably just borrow more. Um, I think that might have to be accompanied by another amendment to um, basically prevent spending from outstripping revenue. Uh, but maybe kind of like what maybe, states have to do. Right. Like maybe I'm wrong about that, but states don't seem to have these problems because they seem to have different constitutions that limit the, the way they can spend money. For example, there's always been concern historically about the balanced budget amendment, which I used to think was a good idea and came within one vote in the Senate in 1995 of going to the states for a vote. Uh, but I've heard people argue since, well, had that happened, nothing would have stopped the left or, you know, irresponsible Republicans from uh, spending us into the ground and then advocating more taxes saying, well, we have to balance the budget. So you want to constrain spending, right? And you want to do it in such a way that they don't have an excuse to increase taxes. I'm sorry if I'm going off on a tangent, but um, no, it's, that's, it's, it's, it's a correct tangent. I'm going to ask you one last one because we're almost running out of time here. And, and thank you for coming on. I'm not a fan of foreign spending anymore. Haven't been for a while, but I haven't been vocal about it. Can you point to any look what you would claim to be legitimate foreign aid that the United States does right now that benefits our country? No. Okay. 
The, I can't the, either. The the main thing that I've learned is it's one of the, it's, it's sort of a sad lesson, but it's true, is that the federal government exists to spend a lot of your money at home and abroad for things that don't benefit you. And so really, like, for example, the, the, the quick one sentence way, which I'd love to get in another time is they spend an awful lot of money slathering them on U.S. based NGOs who work overseas. These organizations don't actually solve any problems. In fact, they're not required to. There are no metrics for success. And then they use the money we give them to come not only lobby for more money, but criticize the U.S. for being a horrible country. So, no, there's no good foreign aid right now. I, I look at it as a, a international Ponzi scheme. And I think it's a way for, for politicians to get bribes and pick kickbacks. I think if we went back and audited 30 years of, of money we've sent out, I, I guarantee a big chunk of it is coming back into somebody's cousin's brother's corporation and, and, and offshore. Hey, Darren, you'll, you'll notice a lot of these members, the former members of Congress wind up on the boards of some of these aid slathering organizations. Yeah. Um, it's the, the revolving door is, is very real. Well, it's not only is it very real, but the, the other thing that bothers me is not only seeing the money go out, but we're not capping. You look at Nancy Pelosi, someone who supposedly makes $175,000 a year. And I'm, yeah, I'm not saying she's not creative in, uh, in her investing, but her net worth has only been because of insider trading. If you or I do it, we go to prison. She's become yeah. fantastically wealthy off it. And that kind of stuff is just absolutely got to stop. All right. Well, we're about to run out of time here. John, thanks for coming on. Anything else you want to throw in before uh, we call this one uh, in the books? Uh, I just want to, uh, first of all, I want to wish your audience a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And uh, God willing, we'll see some amazing changes in 2022 and see God's hand in the, the lives we have. And also, I wanted to throw in my website, my organization's website. It's AmericaFirstPolicy.com americafirstpolicy.com. So I'm the director of the Center for Homeland Security and Immigration, but we have good people here who work on everything from uh, education to uh, election integrity to foreign policy. So come on and check us out. Even even donate, possibly. Uh, if, if the spirit moves you. There we go. All right, John, thank you for coming in. Folks, you've been listening to the Information Edge podcast with Darren Yancey. Uh, as always, I try to bring you a good message that educates you a little bit, entertains you, makes you think. And I'll be back next week. Actually, I take that back. This is my last live for this year. I've got a couple. We're going to go back and replay. And in, in 2022, my goal is we're going to bring in the wrecking ball. And I hope you'll enjoy it. John, thank you for coming on. Have a great weekend, folks. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Information Edge. Please join your host, Darren Yancey, again next Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Central, and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll have more to share then.